0: Women are left out of research. And so what makes us unique is also what makes us a little bit more complicated. There's this perception that cortisol is bad and other hormones are good. And I've seen women that are cycling perimenopausal and menopausal harness intermittent fasting and do it well, but there's so many factors that impact that. There's a mindset shift that needs to occur where we just give ourselves some grace. And we acknowledge that part of the process in our life's journey is to just determine that at any given point in time, may need to do things a little differently, and that's totally okay.
1: Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing tactics line here in. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I think you will love today's episode.
2: Finally, all your female fasting questions answered. I know there's a lot of controversy surrounding fasting in females, a lot of questions about hormones. It was so wonderful to dive really deep into all of that. I think you'll really enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at MelanieAvalon.com slash females. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. One exciting thing before we jump in, would you like to make listening to this episode a Vegas nerve toning session? I am not making that up. Last week, I had on the founder of Zen by Nuvana. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, but basically it's a device that works with your phone and uses gentle electrical stimulation into your ear to activate and tone your vagus nerve. It's seriously the coolest thing. Our vagus nerve is often out of balance today. Thanks to our chronic stress that we're exposed to, it can really help bring your body back into balance. And what I love, like I said, is you could use it while listening to podcasts, listening to music. You could get it and turn it off while listening to this show. It's the coolest thing ever. I've actually found it has really been helping my stress and my digestion, which is really awesome, but you can actually get 20% off, which is awesome. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash zen, that's X-E-N, and use the coupon code MELANIE20 for 20% off. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited about the conversation I'm about to have. It is a hot, hot topic. Whenever I'm prepping for these shows, I post in my Facebook group and ask for questions for the guests. And I posted this question about the potential topics that we will talk about today and just got hit with a deluge of questions. People are dying to know about some of the things we're going to talk about. I am beyond honored to be here with Cynthia Thurlow. She is a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting. She knows all about female hormones, all of the things. She's actually been a nurse practitioner for 20 plus years, and you might have seen her because she's been all over the place. She's had two TEDx speaking events, one which has actually been viewed nearly 6 million times, which is a, a mind-blowing number. She's been on ABC, on... On Fox 5, KTLA. She's been a medium, entrepreneur, basically all the things. And one of the go-to experts on not only a passion of mine and my audience, which is intermittent fasting, like I said, but also specifically women and hormones and how all of that relates. So I am excited about having you here. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm really excited. And I, I didn't realize that you were now
0: on the East Coast. So you're suffering through this sultry, hot summer with the rest of us.
2: I am. You and I both <laughs> at this moment. So to start things off, a lot of my listeners are probably very familiar with your work. But would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal story and what did lead you to where you are today with your current focus and the health and nutrition world?
0: well, it's it's probably a pretty interesting story because it's not the typical pivot for a nurse practitioner or nurse for that matter. But I think after many years of working as a nurse practitioner and then becoming a parent, it really changed my perspectives. My oldest son, who's now fifteen, which is hard to wrap my head around, he actually developed life-threatening food allergies, and so I started to look at food very differently. He was exclusively breastfed and was otherwise a very happy, healthy, well-adjusted, you know, infant and toddler and and you know, child, but had horrendous eczema. And so I kept looking for answers, and my traditionally trained peers just kept telling you put the steroid cream on and carry your EpiPen and you know, keep your mouth shut. You'll be good. And I just was never satisfied about that with that answer. And so I read a book called The Unhealthy Truth. And I I always like to credit Robin O'Brien. I have no affiliation with her, but her reading her book really changed my life and opened up my eyes to a whole other perspective about how much nutrition can impact our health. And let me be clear, I trained at a leading research institution both for undergrad and grad school and and nutrition was not something that any of us spent much time on we've got a very cursory you know overview we were told to leave it to the registered dietitians and to you know keep stay in our lane you know you're nurses stay in your lane and so what I came to find out was that for me I started looking at my patient population very differently I started asking different questions I became intensely interested in the lifestyle piece. And and because I was working in cardiology as an MP, most of the time that our patients got, came to us either in the hospital or in clinic, they already had disease. They were diabetic. They were vascular paths, which is a fancy way of saying that they had diffuse vascular disease head to toe, or they had had a heart attack, or they were significantly overweight and inflamed and, and pretty sick. And so I started challenging my patients a little bit differently, you know, not just let's get your blood pressure down, let's manage your blood sugar better. But, you know, do you think we can maybe dial in in the way you're eating? And I would say 90% of my patients kind of tune me out. They're like, Cynthia, I'm not going to change the way I eat. I'm not going to stop smoking. I'm not going to exercise more. I'm not going to bed earlier. Just give me the pill. I like you. You're cute. You know, I'll just <laughs> leave me be. And so you know, for me, I I dove down a rabbit hole of, you know, trying, I tried one class in a doctoral program. I did a wellness coaching program that didn't light me up. But what finally lit me up was a functional nutrition program. And I then discovered that was what I was really meant to do. And, And so I continued to work in my nurse practitioner job. And, you know, my husband continued to think this was becoming a hobby and not really something I would ever generate an income from, And then four years ago, I took a leap of faith. I woke up one morning and I said, I'm tired of writing prescriptions. And so, you know, for me, it really became a passion project to impact people on a greater level, not just in clinic, not just in the hospital, wherever the course of a week, I might interact with a hundred patients. I can now impact thousands of people. And so that's where I got to where I am. But what people are most interested in is how does an introvert go to public speaking. And and so I always come from the place of wanting to teach and wanting to educate. That's, that's where I come from. And one of the ways that I challenge myself as an introvert is to do things that scare me a little bit, but aren't scary per se. You know, I'm not going to, you're not going to catch me jumping out of an airplane, but you will see me stand on a stage and talk to people about hormones and food and intermittent fasting and all these other things. And so two years ago, I told my husband, I wanted to do a Ted talk because I thought that seemed really scary. I'm going to do a Ted talk because I'll have to commit commit something to memory, which to me was hard, was terrifying. You know, I can get up there with slides. That's easy, but I have to commit it to memory. And so got one talk, got two. Second talk came pretty quickly after the first, I had to come up with a topic. And so I picked something I knew a lot about and really the rest is history. My life changed, shifted enormously. I was obviously doing well, you know, within my business, but it just goes to show you that people are really desperate to learn strategies that they can sustain to some extent or another throughout their lifetimes. And they're tired of being literally fed the garbage that, you know, it's the seco calories in calories out and that we have to eat many meals and we have to stoke our metabolism and, you know, all this dogma that has largely been, you know, just proven on so many levels, much to the naysayers, that are out there. But yeah, that's that's a little bit of how I got to where I am today. Obviously, the most important thing that I do in my life is be a mom to my boys. I have all boys including two doodles and a lizard. You know, I'm just a female surrounded by all men including my husband as well. But yeah, that that's that's like a kind of a snapshot into who I am and how I got to where I am right now.
2: Oh my goodness. I love all of that so much. We we're so similar. I'm actually I am very much an introvert, which people never, I think, especially as podcasters, they don't expect that because they're hearing us talk, you know, 24 seven, but no, I'm like severely an introvert. So going back, a really quick question about your son and the eczema and everything. Did you find the, the root cause? Was it a food sensitivity? Yeah, he actually had life
0: threatening food allergies. So for him, and I had the pediatrician really fighting me about he's too young, we don't need to do food allergy testing. And I said, my gosh, I've like the kid eats or I eat pristinely. So if it's something healthy that he's allergic to, then we need to know. And it turned out he has life threatening allergies to peanuts and tree nuts. And so it's one of the 10 most common allergies to have, but only 20 to 30% of children will outgrow their food allergies. So We have this nation of children that are growing up existing in you know, in some instances, a very sterile bubble. I'm not a believer in that. I, you know, my son's very responsible, but very humbling. You know, I don't think we ever ate out in a restaurant for the first two years because I was legitimately hadn't having taken care of anaphylactic life-threatening food allergy people for years as an ER nurse. It scared me to death to think of this little, this little guy potentially, you know, getting so sick. And then after a while I had to kind of tell myself I needed to pull the bandaid off and we couldn't like live like in a sterile environment for the rest of our lives. That wasn't realistic. And he was going to eventually have to go to school and go to play dates and be outside the home. And I had to be able to feel comfortable with that. And it's our, I think it's a human intrinsic nature to want to protect those you love, but I think I was stunned. I thought maybe he had a food sensitivity. I was like, well, you know, sometimes when he eats raspberries, he gets like really bad diaper. In my mind, it was like something really benign and it turned out to be legit. And he is still, even at 15, still very highly allergic to those foods. He didn't know for those allergies. And there's a whole other set of concerns as a parent, as they're getting older, because you, you know when they start dating and you know when they're not preparing their food in their own house and they're out and you know maybe they're not making good choices you just start to think about all the ramifications
2: that's insane and to that point i wonder about like right now with covid and quarantine and everything the implications of so many factors that are happening you know the increased sterilization of everything which obviously is warranted but i do wonder about the long term implications and then even things like I recently had Dr. David Perlmutter on and we were talking about children growing up and not seeing as many like faces and like the role of masks. And there's just there's a lot going on right now. I have now become that crazy person
0: because there's so many endocrine disrupting chemicals and a lot of those hand sanitizers. And where I am, they're pretty strict in Northern Virginia. I'm going to be completely honest. So I wear my mask. I do all the things to make sure I can go in and get my stuff from Whole Foods. But where I get my hair cut, they require you to, as soon as you walk in, they check your temperature, they make you use this hand sanitizer. And so I was getting so frustrated because I was like, this is just like crap. So now I bring my own in and I'm like, are you going to let me use my own? (laughs) Like I've become that crazy person now just decides I'd rather just, you know, wipe my hands with rubbing alcohol and I'll do that in front of you. And then I know I'm not exposed to more, you know, endocrine disrupting chemicals that I don't need in my body. But I agree with you. I I think the implications, especially having teenagers, I'm fortunate that my kids, I have one that's an introvert, one that's an extrovert and trying to navigate this new normal with them and attempting to provide some degree of normalcy. The things that I'm really grateful for at my house is that my kids genuinely enjoy being home. Thank goodness. They genuinely enjoy eating at home. They prefer eating at home. So that hasn't been... A challenge. I I think in our area, there were a lot of families that just didn't really cook a lot for themselves. So they were struggling with how to navigate, like there was no takeout, at least initially. And on so many levels, people were being forced to, to cook for their families. Maybe they hadn't done it in a while. Maybe they don't enjoy it. There's no judgment, but we genuinely enjoy eating and cooking at home. So at least I'm grateful for that. Like I try to take the small wins. It's like, okay, let's be grateful about the things that have worked out more easily for us than maybe some other families. Because I know there are people in in my community and elsewhere that, you know, as soon as some of the restaurants were doing takeout, they were doing takeout like every day. And and we were just like, you know, we're kind of picky. And (laughs) it's, you know, trying to go somewhere. We want to support the local businesses. I was just buying like, I would buy gift cards just to, I'm like, okay, if I buy a hundred dollar gift card, I feel like I'm doing my part, but I don't necessarily have to eat there right now while I'm, doing this. But yeah, it's it's such a strange, strange place to navigate these days for sure.
2: I've always been a cook at home person. My co-host Jen, we're complete opposites on this because she's always like, you know, the meal delivery service and the restaurants. And I'm like, nope, I got to go to the grocery store every day. I got to pick out my food. I got to come home and cook it. It was funny when the whole quarantine COVID thing started because I eat mostly like whole foods. I go and I buy like massive amounts of food every day because like fruit, vegetables. And so I would go and purchase my normal amount of food, but I felt like I looked like, you know, right at the beginning when people were, some people were stocking up and other people were raising eyebrows. I wanted to be like, no, I always purchase this many cucumbers every day.
0: That's funny. Yeah. Food scarcity, toilet paper scarcity. It was all very interesting for sure.
2: It was. But so glad you brought up the endocrine disruptors because- I think that is such a huge problem today. It's actually a question I wanted to ask you because, so hormones, especially female hormones, obviously they have such a massive impact on how our body functions. You know, women might be doing a certain dietary practice for the longest time and then different stages of their life hit, premenopause, menopause, postmenopause, and all of a sudden what they've been doing, you know, doesn't work anymore. So with that, do you think, especially when women enter a new life stage and experience hormonal changes, do you think the struggles that they experience with their diet, their, their activity levels, their, their weight, is it all hormones? Is it also aging? Like what is the role of hormones in maintaining our healthy body? that we're also happy with on the weight side of things, which I know brings in a whole nother aspect of things, but
0: the role of hormones. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we have hormones that are carefully orchestrated throughout our lifetime. And obviously I think when, you know, women and, and boys go through puberty and their teen years, that's a very different experience. And 20s and 30s, I, I think are our, our hormones for most women. I mean, we're cycling usually every month. You know, we have one hormone that predominates the beginning half of the menstrual cycle, which is estrogen. We have another that predominates in the second half of the menstrual cycle, which is progesterone. And it's really a delicate balance. And I think as women get closer to middle age, so ladies, I know no one likes to hear this, but if you're in your late 30s, early 40s, you are there. When we are transitioning into perimenopause, which is the five to seven years preceding menopause, that is when things get a little more interesting. And I say interesting because I always like to keep a positive spin. I'm a huge advocate of the power of our mind. And I don't like women to fear, you know, getting older. I think that's really critical, you know, to maintain your sanity, because what's the alternative? I don't know about anyone that's listening. But for me, I I want to live as vibrantly for as long as possible. And so, you know, the the bulk of the information that our body processes in, for the endocrine system is filters through our brain, you know, the hypothalamus pituitary axis. And so, you know, there's this gentle orchestration between perceived information and, and information and stimuli that our body takes in from the outside, as well as what we process on the inside, both physically and emotionally. And what I find is that as women are making this transition into perimenopause and beyond, as I like to say, that on many levels, if they have not been taking care of themselves, their lives get a whole lot more interesting. And by this, I mean, if you are the typical type A that does not sleep enough, that over-exercises that has no stress reduction strategies that doesn't eat a an anti-inflammatory diet and that could look a little different for each one of us that doesn't, you know, have enough downtime you are really going to struggle a whole heck of a lot more so what i affectionately refer to it as a lot of women will, you know, fly to this wall at middle age and what typically ends up happening is that their progesterone which is predominantly produced in cycling women and their from their ovaries starts to lessen and so they get this relative and these are all generalities but they get this relative estrogen dominance which can impact their periods and pms and things like that and it can impact cortisol levels because our bodies are now leaning on the adrenal glands a bit more to get the progesterone that our body is is anxious to have enough of And so you start to see these imbalances. I I like to think of it as a three-legged stool, as, as one leg of the stool is imbalanced, then the whole stool is imbalanced. And so that kind of visual representation of how critical all these hormones are, and obviously there are tons of hormones, but the key ones that people think about are cortisol and insulin and oxytocin and things like progesterone and testosterone and estrogen, as well as many others. But the imbalances between these things can impact weight gain and can impact sleep and can impact stress management and can impact our gut integrity. So we can suddenly start developing food sensitivities, which is not fun. And so, you know, it's so, so critical for us to be aware of the chemicals that can disrupt our hormones in negative ways. and, And we get exposed to them through many different avenues. It could be the food we eat. It could be our personal care products, which is a huge one. When you think about our skin as our largest organ, as well as the fact that our just in our environment. So it's a lot for people to process. And for many women, I always say you got to dip your toe in the pond. You may not be ready for all the information, but small, subtle changes can impact our hormones in such profoundly beneficial ways, as well as profoundly detrimental ways. And so a lot of the work that I do with women is really helping them determine what's going on with their body. How can they support it differently? How can they work closely with their primary care provider and be an advocate for themselves? Because, you know, I I like to remind people that any strategy that I talk about, most men can do and they seem to do it effortlessly or more easily than women do. We are governed by so many things. And what makes us unique is also what makes us a little bit more complicated and so I always like to use the the example of if I'm working with a husband and a wife and I give them the same general general instructions the man will instantly lose, you know, 10 or 15 pounds and the woman will struggle to lose 5. And so I have to really have this conversation that because of our hormones it's both a blessing and a curse in many ways, but it sometimes can make it a bit more challenging and middle age is when you know the boxing gloves come off. You got to really do the work. It's not sexy. People don't like to hear that. They just keep saying, give me a pill. I don't want to change my diet. I don't want to sleep more. I don't want to, you know, the chronic cardio queens that maybe got away with that in their twenties and thirties. You can't do that when you're older. You just can't. Not only is it not detrimental, it'll just raise your cortisol even higher. And one thing that I want to just touch on is that cortisol is not a bad hormone. I think there's this perception that cortisol is bad and other hormones are good. And and I always remind people that all hormones have the ability to have negative impacts on our bodies if they're not properly balanced. And so cortisol and insulin in particular seem to be two that are getting a lot of exposure right now. I always like to, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, Jason Fung has a great book called The Obesity Code. And it's a little bit more in depth for some people. It's, it's not as user-friendly perhaps as some other books that are out there, but it's a great book for content. And when people start putting together, it's almost like putting these puzzle pieces together. It's like, Oh, this is why I can't eat 16 times a day or drink something sugary 16 times a day. Cause if I'm spiking insulin all day long, that's going to lead to weight gain and that's not good. So that's a, probably a more long-winded explanation than what you had originally intended, but I think kind of gives people some perspective about this very delicate system in our bodies, the endocrine system and where it's primarily governed and how important it is. It takes in all this input from, from outside our body as well as inside our body to make decisions about how to run things efficiently or inefficiently.
2: Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. Seating is limited, they do sell out, they sold out last year, so get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I wanna meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash conference with coupon code BCMelanie, get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends, one of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. No, I love that so much. You, you've touched on so many topics I wanted to talk about anyway, so it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, for example, the exposure that we get to endocrine disruptors, I think it's hard to take seriously because I think a lot of people think when they eat food, like obviously you might want to clean up your food, you're putting it straight into your body, but we just don't realize that like with skincare and makeup, for example that also is going directly into our body. And on top of that, it's very like conventional skincare makeup in the US. I've done so much research on it. And the ingredients that are allowed is shocking. Like the fact that there are thousands of chemicals in Europe that are banned because of being endocrine disruptors, toxic carcinogens, obesogens, and the US is banned like less than 10. It's just very, very shocking. And then you touched on the difference between men and women. I feel like the even the scientific literature up until this point is so heavily focused on men, so it can be even hard to, you know, know how things apply to women. I mean, there is you know a lot of literature on women, but still, especially with with a topic like intermittent fasting, for example, which I'd love to dive into because I, I feel like a lot of females. <laughs> They feel like diets won't work for them, that, you know, they've done the calorie restriction, they've done the chronic exercise, they've done all these things, and then they will try intermittent fasting and all of a sudden it seems like the magic bullet, like it just does what they've been wanting for so long, like it just fixes so many things. But then there's this second piece to the story where fears and concerns creep in, very valid and warranted in my opinion, of, you know, how does fasting affect the female body is, is there too much fasting is fasting only appropriate at certain times like should you change your fasting when you're at different stages so so intermittent fasting for females specifically do you think it's always therapeutic and healing can all females do it are there things we should consider i know it's a big question but it's a question <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I mean you're right. There is such little research and women are left out of research. I understand intellectually why they like to leave women out of research because there's so many fears and concerns about fertility and pregnancy and all these things, but it loses out opportunities to really understand how the female body is impacted by, you know, fasting methodology and so you know, the answer is bioindividuality rules. If there are 200 people listening right at this time, just as an example, you might have a third of people who can do it easily and effortlessly. You might have a third of people who have to cycle in and out of intermittent fasting. And then you have a third that it wouldn't be appropriate for. And so when I'm talking to women that are in a cycling phase of their lives, I'm very clear about the fact that if their cycle, as an example, you know, gets a little flubbed up one or two cycles, that's not a big deal. But if it remains that way or they suddenly stop having a period, that's a sign that it's too much. And I I just think, you know, we as a nation are so focused on forcing results that sometimes we don't take into account that maybe this is not the right strategy for us right now, even though we want to make it work. You know, we want it. We have, we've seen all these people talking about all these amazing ways that we can support our body, but it doesn't necessarily mean it applies to every woman at every time. So, you know, as it pertains to cycling women, I I think, you know, using their menstrual cycle as a barometer, if you will, is really critical. I like perimenopausal women who are still getting cycles, their cycles are going to be wonky that may or may not impact their cycle negatively. But that's the point in their lives that if everything else isn't ratcheted in, they haven't ratcheted in the stress management, they're over exercising. they're eating crappy food and drinking too much wine or menopause. I like to remind people, and let me just backtrack, the a number one reason why people come to me is because they want to lose weight. They believe that I'm the person that's going to be able to help them figure that out. And and we do always, we always do. It's always a different combination of reasons for different people. But when it comes to intermittent fasting, I have to remind people that if you're not already sleeping, intermittent fasting is not going to help you lose weight. If you have a wonky cycle, intermittent fasting is another stressor that we're adding to your body. So we have to make sure your body's ready to accept that additional stress. You know, all these hormetic stressors that we talk about. And then lastly, if someone doesn't feel good by intermittent fasting, and by that I mean they don't have more energy, they don't have more mental clarity, it might not be the right strategy for you. And I have women who try to force a square peg into a round hole. And it's it's both sad for me that they're so determined to make it work. And I just keep telling them, like, your body is telling you right now it's not ready. We have to listen to your body. Bioindividuality rules. I know, but my best friend, my sister, my mom, my this person, it all worked for them. And sometimes we have to take a step back and we have to dig a little deeper. We have to peel off another layer of onion and we really have to look and see what potentially could be making it challenging for them at that point in time. And it doesn't mean never. It might just be not right then. But I do agree with you that we are not many men. And that men seem to take to intermittent fasting on many levels, unless they're highly carb dependent, insulin resistant, sometimes can take a little longer. But the average guy, it's like they're like a duck to water with intermittent fasting. Whereas we as women, sometimes it's like a crash landing. You know, we're trying to make it work and it doesn't work as effortlessly as we would like it to.
2: I love everything that you said so, so much. It's very freeing to hear that response because I feel like people are so often kind of what you said, they are either, you know, fasting works for everybody all the time, make it work. And then there's the opposite side where it's like, you know, it's too stressful for females. Females shouldn't be fasting. So to hear that it is very bio-individual, which is how I feel like pretty much everything in life is, is really, really wonderful. Actually, do you have thoughts on, because I have read specifically that fasting during certain phases of a female's menstrual cycle might be more... Or less appropriate? Like I'd read that during the follicular phase, you should not be fasting, and during the luteal phase, you should be fasting. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I do.
0: Actually, I read a book by Dr. Daniel Pompa last year, which really resonated with me because, on so many levels, it intrinsically made sense that we would differentiate how we would fast preceding our menstrual cycle, you know, the five to seven days. And so he is an advocate. And, and actually now I've kind of implemented this with my own patients, the five to seven days preceding your menstrual cycle, you actually will have a shorter fasting window. So, so when we start thinking about carbohydrates, I will, I will ask my ladies to increase their carbs from that five to seven day period. And so I really stress root, root vegetables and squash and low glycemic berries and things like that over bread and pasta you know, the more processed carbohydrates. And I find that their cravings go down, they've increased insulin sensitivity. So their body is really primed to be able to accept a higher carbohydrate diet. And then the day that they start menstruating, they go back to their normal fasting schedule. And so I've come to find that that's really beneficial for cycling women. And for a lot of the women in perimenopause and menopause, once they're fat adapted, so once their body is using ketones as the primary fuel source, then I will encourage them to consider varying their schedule. So much like we wouldn't do the same exercise program every single day of our lives. I'm an advocate once you're fat adapted to have variety, you know, our, our bodies like variety, in just about every, you know, every way imaginable. And so, This is a time when I will encourage people to experiment with their fasting windows. So maybe they're doing a 24-hour fast. Maybe they're doing a shorter fast. Just really liking people to be not only attuned to their bodies, because listen, we're going to have days where we're a whole lot hungrier than we are normally. And there's no shame in saying, okay, instead of fasting for 18 hours, I did it for 15 because I was really, really hungry. I had a couple of really tough training days or maybe my macros were off the last couple of days. And my body told me that it needed more food today. And it just reminds our bodies that we're not starving. And so I think that's a really important distinction. And, you know, for anyone that's listening, you know, the really nice thing about intermittent fasting is the flexibility piece. So don't be rigid about the dogma. You know, I I always say dogma is what gets us in trouble. There are very few things about intermittent fasting I'm rigid about. But I know that all of us are on the same page about clean versus dirty fasting. So beyond that, I always say, you know, experiment, find what works for your body, listen to how your body feels, how are you sleeping, what's your energy like, and then kind of proceed from there.
2: Love it. Do you have thoughts on alternate day fasting specifically? You know, I think that
0: can be a methodology that can be effective for people. I have a few people who prefer that. And so, you know, we know based on, you know, study research that that can be also be, you know, there can be a lot of benefits, you know, garnered from that. But I I think it really depends on what works best for your lifestyle. For me, I'd rather eat every day (laughs) than fast every other day. So, you know, for me, it's just, it's more of a a mindset switch, but I, it's really finding what strategy and what philosophy and what structure works best for your professional and personal lives.
2: Gotcha. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by it because there does seem to be a ton of research on it specifically. And I'm really intrigued by like the longevity benefits, you know, sometimes they'll do it with like a 500 day calorie quote fasting day, but I just, I always have to have my really big meals every day. So I'm like such a fail in that camp.
0: Well, but I think it's also like what works for you. Like for me, I'd rather do one 24 hour fast Than have a sub 500 calorie day when I just feel like the whole day I'm fixated on the lack. And that's not my mentality normally, but for me, it's the lack. It's like, oh, well, I really should be having more, but no, I'm just not going to have
2: more. I've done a lot of research on like the fasting mimicking diet, and we even had Walter Longo on the Intermittent Fasting podcast quite a while ago, but I actually tried it recently. And again, such a fail. But the point is, I think like we keep saying that, you know, bio-individuality is key and question to that about the intuition. So if a female is practicing, cause you were, you were talking about the importance of mixing things up and, you know, sending different signals. What if a female is doing an intermittent in fasting protocol, not switching it up a lot, like for, for one meal a day, for example, and they feel really good on it, Like, is it intuitive or is it possible that they still should be switching it up? Like, can you just ride the intuition boat or do you think it is important to send signals occasionally of, oh, we're not fasting right now?
0: Right. Well, I don't like one meal a day sustained for women. I just don't. I mean, if it's around a holiday, if it's around a vacation, I think it's fine. Like, oh, I ate too much and I'm just going to reset myself tomorrow. I just think over time you are not going to get your macros in and and let's be like I'm very very OCD about telling my my patients, my clients, most of us are protein deficient, so that's really a big focus is that, you know, you, there's no way over the course of a week you're going to get enough protein in in a 2 hour feeding window. Like that's just impossible. Maybe a dude can, maybe a guy can have a four hour eating window and they eat a massive meal and maybe then they hit there. But I'm like, I just find women just can't consume enough. Like I couldn't consume 115 grams of protein in a meal like that would be completely impossible. So I, I think it's, it's fine as a every once in a while strategy, but I still think even in that instance, you don't want your body to think you're starving. That's why the shaking it up and varying what you're doing is so critical and important. And I'm knee deep on a book proposal right now. And so I feel like all this is really, really, really fresh in my mind as I'm trying to, you know, kind of illuminate this, this philosophy. But, you know, there is an intuitiveness to intermittent fasting. I agree with you, but there's also for some people, and and this would be part of the camp of people who really shouldn't be doing intermittent fasting. There are a lot of women who hide their orthorexia and anorexia in their intermittent fasting And, you know, I see far too many of them. I'm not going to call anyone out on social media, but it's really apparent to me who those individuals are. And, uh, you know, it's it's an eating disorder guised as intermittent fasting. And so, you know, I, I just think that for someone who's very mentally healthy, has a healthy relationship with food, likes food, likes the way their body feels when they're fueled, It's a great strategy. And then there are people who use it as a means to cover up an eating disorder. And that's very different. And that's an important distinction to kind of shed a little bit of light on because I I feel like it would be doing women a disservice if we didn't talk about that. Because that's the sometimes I call it the ugly side of fasting that there are definitely people who, on occasion, use it as a strategy to hide some unhealthy behaviors. Does that make sense?
2: One hundred percent. I'm so glad you brought that up. Although I I might be the exception to the female not able to eat that much protein at one sitting. Like protein, protein is my thing. Like I can't I can't not do the protein. So I've probably eaten for the past ten years every night like pounds of protein. So I'm like the one exception there.
0: Yeah, you might be. Because when people, I'll say to them, just track your macros for a couple days and show me. And they're like 50 grams of protein a day, 60. And I'm looking at them going, dude, you are so far off. That is not
2: healthy funny. People will say to me, like, "Oh, I, I did a higher protein day. I ate like eighty, you know, grams." I'm like, "That would be so low protein for me." <laughs> like,
0: like, no, you are an exception. You're definitely an outlier. I, I find that that, and and then you start having the conversations of what sarcopenia is and why that's you know a concern. And I can look at women as a clinician, like their body habitus, like looking at their bodies, and I was like, "Oh, you've got significant muscle wasting. Like you're skinny, but you're not healthy." And so that's the you know, distinction in my mind of, you know, wanting to support people and healthy habits. And I just find we're a very carb centric culture as a, as a rule. And so that becomes problematic as we're trying to navigate these conversations. It's like, I'm like the most lovingly supportive person, but sometimes I have to call it out. It's like, okay, where's the snark? I grew up in New Jersey. Every once in a while it comes out. I'm like, I can't help myself
2: some further resources for listeners. If you'd like to learn more about the the protein thing, I had Ted Neiman and William Shufeld on the podcast. I'll put a link to that interview. And I also wanted to provide a link for listeners because I had Dr. Pompa on as well. He is the best. I just love him. He has a heart of gold. And we talked a lot about the carbs and all that stuff. So that'll all be in the show notes. Big question for you. How do you feel about bioidentical hormones for women, Actually of all ages because I know they're often used in the later cycles of you know menopause and postmenopause and things like that but like I know when I was 20 something I saw a nurse practitioner my hormones were all normal but I had insomnia and stuff like that and she put me on a low dose of progesterone and I wonder to this day, like, is like, how does that affect the body? So what, what, yeah, what are your thoughts on bioidentical hormones?
0: Lots of pieces to undig there. When we're looking at bioidentical hormones, you know, there are options that, you know, women can consider. And so it's unpacking a lot, you know, synthetic hormones have been the mainstay, you know, people put on oral contraceptives and hormonal IUDs and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a very personal decision. I'm not typically a fan of prescribing bioidenticals while women are still cycling. I think that's, you know, based on a conversation I had with some peers last week, I feel pretty comfortable saying that there's not a lot of great research to do that. You know, progesterone cream that is used to help support sleep. I'm not sure if that was the indication that the nurse practitioner was, was using it for. I mean, that I think of as being pretty benign. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. If we're talking about like estradiol, which is non-synthetic estrogen and testosterone and progesterone, you really have to work on all the other pieces supporting the endocrine system first, because if you just slap the hormones on there and they're still not sleeping well and their stress is out of control and their food choices are crappy, it's like a bandaid. It's not like a bandaid. It is a bandaid. And so For that reason, I think you have to be really careful, not only who you choose to work with, but making sure that you're really well informed. I'm not taking bioidenticals at this point in my life. And, you know, I have ongoing discussions, you know, it's not uncommon. Sometimes for women to be put on bioidenticals in their perimenopausal years. So, you know, mid to late forties, early forties, depending on who you are. But I think if you're properly balancing your body, if you're sleeping well, your stress is dialed in. You know, you're not over exercising. your food choices are pretty good. If you've got a firm foundation, you know, I was just talking to my nurse midwife about this last week, she said, you have about 10 years, you know, after you go through menopause in which to decide if you want to take bioidenticals to maximize the benefits. And so the benefits are usually focused on bone, brain, and heart health. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of women who are very fearful of bioidenticals, I think there are people that live in parts of the country or outside the United States that they're so fearful that they, you know, may miss the opportunities to be able to harness some of the benefits. But, you know, there are differing camps. There are some people who are very rigid and say everyone needs to be on bioidenticals, you know, before they go through menopause or after mm-hmm. menopause. And then you have other individuals who are, you know, seeming a little bit more open-minded and it's such a personal decision i'm i always tell people i've only had one patient in the last year who i looked at her her testing and based on her symptoms she was so miserable we had done all the foundational work and i just said i think you're in a point where you actually need your brain needs the estrogen you know estro- there are a lot of estrogen receptors in our brains and you know here's the other piece we know that we have estrogen receptors throughout our body and and one of the places that we have estrogen receptors is on our muscle And so when we were talking about protein, this is my segue into talking about the interrelationship between estrogen, estradiol signaling and muscle protein synthesis. And there's an amazing physician, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who really kind of introduced me to this concept. And so you know, sarcopenia is this muscle loss that that accelerates after the age of 40. And so whether people are lifting rates and or hopefully also eating lots of protein, it's a way to starve off. This muscle wasting, but it also ensures that, you know, if muscle is the organ of longevity, it also ensures that you are able to properly package up insulin and you are going to be less insulin resistant. You're going to be more metabolically flexible because let's be honest, that's what we all want. We want to be metabolically flexible, irrespective of our ages. And that's one of the ways to do it. So there, there are so many things that have to be unpacked from that conversation. I'm not pro, I'm not anti. I kind of exist in a gray space. I think it's really dependent on the individual, who they're working with, what their lifestyle is like. If you hear there's consistent themes throughout this conversation for me, Where I say to people, if you can't sleep and your diet is crappy and you overexercise and you're super stressed out, putting you on hormones is not gonna be the band-aid. You gotta work on all that other stuff first and then you move on to the hormones. That's, That's my belief system. That's where I am at this point in my
2: life. anti-aging, help with your stress help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ionlayer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm gonna use them For the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, PS, they're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane, there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious and then they're I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful, where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalanceCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. I love that so incredibly much. Actually, question I meant to ask you because you talked about one meal a day probably not being appropriate for females. So what is in your opinion the like shortest eating window that is still safe or the longest fasting window that is still appropriate? Cuz I know, I know my listeners are going to be like how long can I fast? <laughs>
0: So it's always in the context of, let's go back to like, how are you sleeping? What's your energy like? You know, there are a lot of people who are very happy existing at 16 hours. Are you going to get more fat oxidation and more growth hormone secretion, you know, the longer you go? Yes. But is that a stress? So it's, it's, again, it goes back to that, you know, this, it's almost like this delicate seesaw. It's a hormetic stressor. How much stress are you putting on your body? Is it a day where you got up at 5am and got in the gym and did a really intense hit workout and then lifted and then went home and you, you know, restricted your, you know, your eating window and you didn't drink enough water and you've been super stressed. Like that person in that context is, is probably stressing their body more than they need to versus someone who maybe gets up, they do some yoga, they, you know, get outside in nature, they have some green tea, you know, maybe they, you know, maybe they take a walk with their spouse or their kids later. They don't have as much stress. I I just think that it really is always in the context of not being rigid, really listening to your body. You know, when it comes to the the typical framework that I see, 16 to 20 is typically where I see a lot of women like to hover. They don't necessarily want to do the 24 hour fast. They maybe, you know, 16 hours may not. Once their fat adapts, 16 hours is easy. It's like breathing. That's usually what I hear. I think it's really being attuned to how your body feels on a given day. And, you know, acknowledging that there are days like I'll be honest with you, I am the kind of person I'm I'm very attuned to how my body feels. And I, normally once the gym's open back up, I was back in the gym three or four days a week lifting. And I just took a month off from lifting. And I did more walking and I did more solid core and I did more yoga than I had done in a long time. And, you know, I think our body needs us to, to be open-minded to changing things up on occasion. And so I would invite anyone that's listening. To just be attuned to what your body is trying to tell you. And this is not woo woo. And this is not, you know, invalidated science. This is, let's be realistic about where we are in time and space. Like depending on where I'm in my menstrual cycle, do I really have a desire to push my body or am I, or am I more tired? And do I need to do more yoga and more restorative work? Or am I going to push my body and maybe I'm pushing it too hard you know, there's a very fine line and, and the things that I punished my body with in my twenties and thirties, I don't do in my forties. And now maybe I'm older and wiser that I just don't think that's necessary and would encourage anyone that's listening to just experiment a little bit. It's okay. I think there's, there's a mindset shift that needs to occur where we just give ourselves some grace and we acknowledge that part of the process and our life's journey is to just determined that at every, any given point in time, we may need to do things a little differently. And that's totally okay.
2: I keep saying that's what I love that so much. I, I feel like probably one of the biggest switches for me in my life, just I hadn't really thought about this before. But like the whole sleep piece, like in college and everything, you know, it's like about the quote was always nobody remembers the night they got plenty of sleep or something. But now like, sleep is so sacred to me. I'm like I will do everything to support it and it is super important. For listeners for actual like testing, how deep do you, listeners need to go with testing? Do you recommend doing like full hormonal profiles, Dutch tests, cortisol, like thyroid.
0: Oh yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. Uh, you know, it's always in the context of what someone's experiencing, but I'll, I'll give you an example with the average woman who comes to see me. What we're testing, we do the Oxford MRT, which is food sensitivity testing done with blood. We do the GI map, which is stool testing, looking at stool pathogens, looking at for candida, worms, parasites, dysbiosis. The It gives you a good sense of the estrobolome. We will do the Dutch. Obviously, there's different types of Dutch testing. Some of it's for people who still wake up in the middle of the night and they'll get a cortisol reading. That's dried urine and saliva. But I would say general, like more conventional labs that I'm looking at, I like to see a CBC, a CMP. I like to see a full thyroid panel, which in from soup to nuts, that's usually nine to 11 tests that you're looking at. Most people aren't having enough thyroid tests done. And yes, that includes thyroid antibodies. If they have not been done before, I like to look at an iron panel. I like to look at fasting insulin, fasting glucose and LDH, as well as a hemoglobin A1C. And that's a good starter I don't necessarily rush to do inflammatory markers. I have a lot of people asking, what do you think about the high sensitivity CRP? And I said, we drew them all the time in cardiology. And then we're like, what the hell do we do with that? You know, What do we do with that? A fasting lipid po- profile, because I like to see what triglycerides are doing. And for people who tell me they're not eating a lot of carbs and then their triglycerides are like 400, I'm like, okay, you're eating way too many carbs. So I like to see triglycerides below 100, preferably lower. I think my last one was like 50. And then you can also get a look at their HDL, their LDL, their total cholesterol. But that's a good starting place. I think that's reasonable and feasible. And I find I don't get a lot of pushback if I send someone to their primaries to get labs drawn. I usually have to spell out what a full thyroid panel is because, you know, conventionally, sometimes it's a TSH and a free T4, but I want free and total T3 and T4 I want um, a reverse T3. I absolutely want to see their thyroid antibody markers. I mean, there's a couple other things that I'll order on occasion. And then I always say I play well with others. so if they get the labs done through their primaries and they share them with me, then you know, I'll sit down and go through their labs and kind of fine-tooth comb what we need to be looking for and, and what can be providing input about areas of deficiency or areas that require more support. But that's typically where
2: I'll start. I'm glad, so glad you brought that up about the testing and the working with the primary doctor because I think so many people it, it can be so difficult to navigate the the conventional medical system and you know make it affordable based on the individual you know because a lot of people can get labs drawn through their insurance through primary doctors but it can be really hard to find you know somebody on their insurance who has the the mindset and the approach like somebody like you would have. Are you currently taking patients?
0: I'm on a wait list, but I do have another advanced practice nurse that's part of my team who is taking people. So I'll probably start taking people again in the fall.
2: Okay, awesome. So for listeners, as I mentioned in the beginning, there will be a transcript of the show at the show notes, because I know we t- <laughs> she mentioned a lot of things there. So you can definitely reference that, <laughs> reference that for everything. Um, so two quick questions before we go. I, I'm just super curious if you had all the resources you needed, you had all the funding, if you could construct any study. And like this, the health world, what would you want to test?
0: Well, I think I definitely would want to be able to look at, and this is, this is probably because this is my niche, but I would really like to look at the impact of biohacking strategies on women of middle age. So perimenopause and menopause, because there's such little focus on women at these stages, it's almost like I always say, and this is no offense to anyone who's at a different life stage, but I know when I was still getting, when I was getting my period every month and I was on, you know, the contraceptive years, the pregnancy, pre-pregnancy, postpartum, et cetera, there was a lot of focus. And then, you know, I, even as a Western medicine trained provider, no one talked to me about perimenopause until I hit it in like a wall. And so I, I think that women of a certain age deserve all women, let's be honest, all women, cycling women, non-cycling women, we all deserve to have research done to see the impact of a lot of these biohacking technologies. I'm knee deep in Simla's new book on stress.
2: Oh, Stronger by Stress. It's so great. I was reading it last night.
0: We're both dorks together. I said that in a very loving way. I always say like, I'm proud of the fact that I like to expand my mind. But the point being that it would really be nice to see you know, study data that's not done on rodents, and isn't done on men. Because, you know, we have our unique characteristics about our physiology, and our hormones, that it would really benefit from having more information. You know, I don't like fear mongering. And I see a lot of fear mongering. There's a very well known biohacker who someone on his team wrote, you know, like the a very long article, let's just put it that way. About how you know fasting it doesn't work for women, and maybe it's just menopausal women it will work for. And I was like, well, that was kind of depressing. You know, <laughs> that this was written with such a slant, and it was you know. And then of course, the person who wrote the article made sure that that the reader knew it was a female. But I said this just goes back to say it's this fear mongering mentality. I've seen women that are cycling perimenopausal and menopausal harness intermittent fasting and do it well, but there are so many factors that impact that.
2: And that's, that's what I, I think would be curious to know more about. I love it. I love it. I was actually, when you were talking earlier, so much about the theme of this podcast of bioindividuality and too much stress or less stress. I like it. Like you, I've been reading Seam's book for his new book. And I don't know when this comes out because I'm interviewing him for it. So for listeners, if you're more interested in that, I will put a link to that as well. But yeah, it's just, it's really, really hard to find in this world, people with the perspective Like I feel like I hold like you hold where it has the nuance and it has the bioindividuality and it realizes there's just so much more to the puzzle than, you know, one right answer.
0: Yeah. Well, and I I was trying to explain to someone the other day, they said, well, explain to me what bioindividuality is. And I said, I take 10 patients. This is this used to be my life. 10 patients. They all have high blood pressure. They all need a medication. And many of my peers would just give everyone the same med. And I would like look at one and go, okay, you need 2.5 and you need five. And no, these three don't, can't even give them that drug. And it's not a criticism. It's just, I took more, I was very thoughtful about, you know, what was realistic. And I would say, you know, you don't, you don't take an, you don't take like an elephant gun to kill a mouse. I mean, like we need to be you know, very mindful of the fact that just because the patient's blood pressure in our office is X, that doesn't mean what it is at home. So don't go overboard. And so much like to that same extreme, I, I feel like each person that's working with me, I try to look at it from a unique lens. There's not this like one size fits all kind of philosophy.
2: I approve. (laughs) I support. That brings me to the last question I ask every single guest on this podcast. And it's just because I'm realizing more and more every second of every day, how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: Oh, my family. I mean, undoubtedly, you know, I think the social distancing and COVID has just hit home for me that they're my people, they're my everything there's no place I'd rather be than with my boys and my husband and my dogs. And we've had so much time together since March that I always say, you know, if you can still be around everyone after a lot of togetherness, that says a lot. No, you know, you we know, picked well, your picker was, you did, you did well with your picker.
2: That is so true. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. I am so grateful for what you're doing, for your work, for everything. I would love to bring you back on when you release your new book that's so exciting do you have a date for when that's coming out
0: yeah not yet i'm uh you know crossing my fingers that you know this is the the proposal that my lit agent has been anxiously awaiting for it's a couple iterations and and from what i'm told that's normal but it's been challenging to get my my brain focused when everyone's been at home there's been lots of distractions
2: yeah it's so crazy if, if people haven't been in the book world like the proposal itself is like a book
0: yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I mean, there have been blood, sweat, sweat, tears. Lots of tears. Me telling my—I'm my, married to an engineer, and so he's always good to bounce ideas off of because his normal response is, "But that doesn't make sense." I'm like, "Well, of course it does." He's like, "No, it doesn't," and it's because in his mind it has to be crystal clear. And so, you know, he's been my my pre-editor book re- reader, and then you know I send it off, and then I cross my fingers, and then I get feedback, and I'm like, "Okay, we're going for the third time." So. <laughs> Slowly, slowly,
2: slowly. Well, I wish you the best with that. I'm sure it will materialize exactly the way it's supposed to be. And I'm super excited for how that does happen. Are there any links you'd like to put out for listeners to further follow your work?
0: Yeah, I would say my website's a good first stop. And that's Com. I'm also active on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I have a, a free group, Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle, backslash my name, and obviously I have a podcast called the everyday wellness podcast where I get to bring on really cool people and, you know, pick their brains. And, you know, I just had Ted Naiman on, and who did an interview most recently, Nadia Pataguana and JJ Virgin. And so I've had some really cool guests that I always say, I, I love bringing on people that will provide value and, and make us think a little bit differently. I think that's, that's the purpose of these discussions and why podcasts are so cool
2: they're just the best. I mean, speaking of things grateful for, I'm just so grateful for this podcast because of what you just said, like having these conversations are just, I don't know, so grateful for it every single day. And then I like hearing how listeners respond, hearing their thoughts. I just, it's just wonderful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day and hopefully we'll talk again in the future. That's good.